0: And welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm Corey Wright. And I'm Adam
2: Scalina. And Corey, today is a great episode. We've got David Ian Gray. He's the principal
0: and retail strategist at Dig 360. And this is exciting. Very exciting. So anyone, anytime, if you watch global news as an example, anytime there's a retail story, such as Nordstrom's as of late. Yes. You see him on TV. David's on. David's on. I've seen David speak at conferences like ICSC, which is a major retail conference there extremely, extremely knowledgeable on the forefront of what happens in retail. I'm excited for this show because I, a few shows ago, made a, said something to the effect of like, we're going to talk about the Nordstroms. Right. This was the man we were trying to get. This is Nordstrom leaving the Vancouver leaving area. Leaving Vancouver market. How is that going to impact the downtown market? Why are they leaving?
2: How is this going to impact... My wife's uh, Friday afternoon is is a big question in my house. Well,
0: if I were you, I'd be happy because this is going to have great impact in a very positive way on your pocketbook now.
2: Exactly. But this is, you know, what's funny is the, we, we were just talking about it before. And I mean, why is it so important for us to be monitoring retail and, and, thinking about retail in Vancouver, well, I think especially if, post-pandemic.
0: Well, I think if you look at like like what happened, obviously, Vancouver, You mean, you guys probably saw it more on the residential side. People kind of like left the city. Yeah. Right. And retail prices in Vancouver are extremely high. There's a lot of international retailers that you find in our city. Right. right that probably survive on tourism. You mean disposable income, all that stuff in the downtown core. So when that all left, a lot of these places probably struggle. So one thing we're going to find out today, too, that I want to know is, are these companies potentially shrinking footprints? Are big retailers becoming smaller retails now, now post-pandemic, because the online business is so good? On top of that, you can, if retailers are struggling downtown, because companies like Amazon that may not occupy their full tower, I mean, that can be some as a radar of sort of how things are, are moving in a, a good or bad direction. With that, especially when you get international retailers like Nordstrom's and other international retailers who who come and gone now, could be a sort of a, a litmus test on kind of the overall economy, disposable income, who's in Vancouver, who's not in Vancouver, tourism and so on.
2: So it's almost like a report card on the local economy in many ways. You could probably
0: look at it to some degree that way, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so what about just thinking about, because the other thing I've noticed is I will go down to Robson, you know, every three or four months, I don't go there very often, but. I feel like the, the lineup of shops yeah. changes so fast. It's like I go to, I'm like, oh yeah, I like this store. And then it's not there anymore.
0: Well, I think you look at the price per foot and, and David will probably get into this. The price per foot on Robson is extremely high, ridiculously high to, to there. And I think you're finding a lot of the brands that go in there. It's more of a brand play than it is a profit center for them. It helps them sell product in other stores. It could be like a Rodeo Drive or a Fifth Avenue in New York where where are you located? Oh, we have a store on Robson, in Vancouver, Rodeo Drive in LA, Fifth Avenue in New York, where it's kind of more of a positioning play than we're actually making money here. But them being where they are probably helps them sell handbags or jackets or shoes at Holt Renfrew. Wow. Right? So that could be a thing. And, and David will probably dive into this. It's a great question to find out if it is really a brand play. And you look at other things like Lululemon that's expanding their retail footprint. Yeah. Aritzia that's expanding their retail footprint And most people are shrinking. They operate what they call a vertical retail model. Right. Right. So they kind of control the supply chain because they make their own products and then they sell them in their own stores versus the traditional retail model is jeans are made for 20, sold to a wholesaler for 40, wholesaler sells it to Harry Rosen for 80, Harry Rosen sells it to us for 160. Right. Right. They're controlling that whole supply chain. Although there's additional costs that go into doing that, it's a lot cheaper to do that versus the traditional wholesaler model and then onto the retail model. That allows them to make probably a larger profit margin on their clothing, a larger profit margin on a larger sales volume on the foot sales of a store that allows them to have a bigger footprint versus some of the other retailers, the more traditional retail model like a, a Harry Rosen may shrink their retail model because they're not selling as much because online sales have gone up. Right. I mean, these are all great questions that Dave will be able to answer for us today.
2: I can't wait. Well, let's, without further ado, Corey, why don't we cut to our conversation
0: with David Ian Gray. Sounds good. Enjoy, guys. This podcast is presented by Impact Commercial.
2: Okay, so we're here with David Ian Gray. He's the principal and retail strategist at Dig360. How are you doing, David? Pretty good. Damp, but good. Yeah, well, it's been a it's been a number of days now that we've been uh, all living under uh, under clouds. So uh, appreciate you taking the time today. Can you maybe start by listening or by uh, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, David? Yeah, um,
1: I've got an advisory um, group. There's a small uh, collection of us. I'm often not the smartest in the room, but um, I talk the most. Maybe you know I'm the <laughs> friend face of it. We we work nationally, uh, but headquartered in Vancouver, and we we've been around for quite a number of years, and we've got a tight tight focus on the retail sector, and particularly the Canadian context. So we'll we'll work with offshore companies, but it's really about uh, winning in Canada, and we uh, we tend to work. For our kind of advisory, you know the really big guys like uh, Walmart Canada or Loblaw's, they have a lot of in-house resources. Uh, we typically talk to them to sound them out on topics, but we're not working with them. But we do work with a lot of national retail chains or regional retail chains, also direct to consumer brands and uh, and the adjacencies, you know, like landlords, etc.
0: David, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Cause for all of our listeners, whenever there's anything crucial that comes out in the retail world, we always see you on global TV. We've seen you at ICSC and all that stuff, sharing all your knowledge. And obviously, retail has had, I would think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would think probably had the most amount of change have to happen to it over the past three or four years due to the pandemic. If we can go back maybe just a little bit, coming out of the pandemic. What have been some of the dramatic changes that the retail landscape has had to adapt to now with our new patterns of life and maybe co-working spaces and not as many people in the, say, the downtown corn on an everyday basis?
1: Well, just as a preamble to that, to acknowledge what you said, in around 2010, I was having a, a crisis of faith in what I was doing. I really was finding retail incredibly boring. I just felt it was same old, same old. And it's it's so interesting to look at the change i think happened pre-pandemic a few years before that where the the zeitgeist was the death of retail and that actually spurred on a whole lot of tumult and disruptions and which makes things interesting so um i would agree with you and i i would just say that i think a lot of that was starting you know before 2020 but what 2020 did And and the length that the, you know, people, I remember at that time, it was around this time of year, we were thinking, okay, this is going to be intense lockdown for a couple of months, and then we got to rebuild. And this whole, um, you know, the on again, off again, that really took two years uh, is, is really, you know, we're still, I think we're still in shock from it. But a lot of the seeds for what was happening were already planted. So that would be, Things like, is your system readily capable to serve shoppers online, offline? We hear it's almost you know trite to say it, but that in an integrated fashion where you can begin an order online and then finish it or pick it up in the store and vice versa. All those sorts of things seem simple but are actually quite complex when you've got massive systems built for a whole different time and place and purpose. And we saw that a lot of retail... I think a lot of organizations, but we'll say we're talking about retail today, I think there were a lot that the leadership really wasn't getting it. You know, they were muddling along and either they felt they didn't have the money to invest or they felt like, hey, we're doing well enough. We can kind of incrementally chip away at this and wait till the perfect solution arises. Those are the ones that got when when the pandemic hit and everything shifted so quickly, they were the least adaptive. And uh, we've seen a lot shake out that didn't really make it through. I would argue they were, they were in weak positioning underneath the surface beforehand. Then we saw others that, um, I mean, Best Buy is a great example. And, you know, it's relevant because they're headquartered, Canada's headquartered here in Vancouver. They were investing in a very serious way around their systems, their logistics, all the way through to how customers interact you know, and, and data and product move about, they were putting a lot of effort in prior to 2020. So they were able to pivot a lot quicker. So I think when you ask the question, you know, what disrupted, I think the your listeners should just keep in mind that it wasn't like everything was was fine and then suddenly something happened and people had to do a knee-jerk reaction. There was an underswell that was going on. And the ones that were adapting already, what it did was to push them, I think, Further, faster and the ones that were struggling I think it's a mixed bag uh, some of them drifted away you know really got into some trouble others out of duress got on with it and the ones that actually benefited so when we think about the pandemic there were dramatic winners and losers so fashion imploded unless you were doing onesies or uh, lululemon or sweats right? fashion basically imploded right Meanwhile, uh, home furnishings, anything to do with home office, we recall, you know, the home gyms, things like that surge. So if you're in the, if you had the luck of the draw and you're in the right category and you were struggling with financing change, some of them were given a gift and others, it was a double down. So I think, I think the hardest hit and we, and we'll probably talk later about Nordstrom, but the hardest hit were really the, the more uh, fashion forward brands and clothing, but, it affected everyone. In terms of uh, just sort of what were some of the other impacts, um, we call it ripple effects. But uh, because factories were closing in China and, and then there's a bottleneck of a product that had to move through. And, you know, we all know about the supply chain issues, but that really gave rise to long run inflation and a spiky product that was out of stock when was needed and then overstocked when not needed uh, because of timing issues. So that was going on. You know, you, you go down the list. Uh, land the, the whole landlord-tenant relationship was put under extreme test, and it was very case by case. And and I think with some bad faith on both parts, we saw a lot of retailers use it as cover to duck out from a whole lot of leases they may not have really wanted, but they signed at one point. And then we saw other landlords, you know, using it as an opportunity to push out uh, tenants. So. Yeah, I don't know. I we could we could kind of ramble on about this. Is that is that sort of where you're heading? With yeah.
2: Your- yeah, exactly. And and I I kind of I'm curious because um you know, a lot of the time people talk about this kind of idea of of now that, you know, we're getting through this, this notion that we'll go back to pre-pandemic times or that certain models will look the same as they did before the pandemic. Does retail look the same as pre-pandemic times or is it has it transformed? kind of dramatically and will continue to be a, a different version of it for of its former self
1: yeah i would say we're probably halfway through an iteration of transformation like you know transformation happens sort of forever right but you know if you think about going back pre-pandemic what we're really talking about is going back to what was already a fractured model that, that already the signs were showing up that that it had breakpoints. So I I don't think anyone really wants to see that. On the other hand, when I have discussions about that, it's kind of a code phrase for will stores matter again? And I think what the pandemic did, which is really, really interesting, is we've come out of that realizing stores are fundamental to any uh, consumer kind of growth story or or servicing uh, the public. We'll always have some pure play online, but the need to pick up items from store or the the value of having stores where people could return things they didn't want um, and then maybe pick up a couple other things or get problems resolved. The retailers that had a good network like that, like a Canadian Tire or mentioned Best Buy already, London Drugs, you can go down the list. There was huge value to that that started to show up. And we, we could see in the data that um, when lockdowns were eased and you know, in BC, we never had, I use the term lockdown, we, ours were very suggestive, but in Ontario, for example, they were quite draconian. When we saw an easing, we saw people flooding back to store. And uh, you could see on a graph just the spike to e that happened at points in the pandemic, but they all tailed back down after. But what, what happened, I think, is that e now plays across all categories, not just a few categories an important part of many shoppers mix of how they behave. So that's different, but stores are still, you know, vitally important. Um, So when, when you see, go back to, I think it's more, you know, when I hear that, it's more about, hey, are stores gone for good? Well, no, actually, I think this settled the debate on whether stores are dead and they're not dead.
0: One thing that seemed to be very prevalent during you know during the pandemic there that's obviously had significant impact on on shopping habits and everything. I can tell you firsthand, my grocery bills have probably gone from five hundred bucks a week to about ten bucks a week, but my DoorDash bills have gone from zero to about a thousand dollars a week. So, technology obviously was introduced in a major way during the pandemic and has obviously played played a big hand in consumers' shopping habits post pandemic, both with like a food app, for example. But all the way probably to like your traditional retail, Lululemon stuff. How is technology impacting and going to continue to impact the retail environment for retailers moving forward?
1: I I think uh, technology, you know, as a signal going to any of the big uh, retail conferences globally in North America, the last fifteen years, you could see how, and this goes back quite a ways, how the sponsors and vendors that made that up, there used to be a mix of you know, service providers to retail and banks and you go down the list, it's now predominantly technology companies. And you could argue that retail is technology now. We could talk later if we talk about independent retail, I could talk a little bit about where there could be low tech winners. But having tech proficiency and realizing there's no final answer to tech, it's an ongoing program of of development and and honing the craft of learning how to adopt and the right tech that's the proficiency that will keep going and going and going so i think this is a base to the comment i'll I'll say that what's i think really interesting now and i think a great example would be uh the talk the chat that was happening around metaverse and every era there's a new shiny object that comes up and uh in tech because you've got a lot of On the innovator side of it, they're just making stuff up, right? Mad scientists creating things, and then they try and find a home for it. So, metaverse was getting hyped as the next transformative tech for retail, but it it's so limited in what it might do, and it's so on the periphery of any kind of true business model that it it, it's kind of fluttered away in the face of what I call a pragmatism around technology. And I think what happened through the pandemic and has continued now because of the economic uncertainty we're in is there's a real focus on pragmatic technology like is there a real problem that's being solved so is it enhancing something that's going to drive revenue growth in the here and now or is it something that maybe that stays flat but we can operate a lot faster or leaner and so something like the the food delivery was the right place at the right time but it's actually it it was already in place before it just wasn't it didn't have that much adoption but they worked the bugs out right like it wasn't buggy because they'd already gone through that kind of beta testing but it solved problems on both sides like it was a total boon for restaurants that were trying to pivot you know even to this day there's a lot of um We've got a favorite Chinese restaurant and you go there now and they, they've taken most of their tables out. It's all staging areas for uh, food pickups. So the, the tech enabled that. I'll just add an anecdote. I was having a conversation yesterday about on-campus uh, retail and um, was hearing about how students are now using things like Uber Eats or DoorDash to deliver to them. I don't know if it's in their classroom, but in the study hall from somewhere else on campus in real time, you know? So it's just, I always thought of it as a meal and it's coming maybe five kilometers away. Now it's within <laughs> maybe, uh, it could be 500 meters and they're using the apps to to send a coffee over. So it, it's just fascinating, right? And I think, I think that's going on. Uh, there's some other You know, there's some really interesting tech that's going on within supply chain that the the consumer's not going to see, but it's making a lot of things more efficient. Really interesting story about, uh, I believe it's IKEA. This would work more for really, really big, big retail with big warehouses. But we heard a lot about drone deliveries. And again, like it's not really viable. Like, can you imagine everyone getting multiple shipments by drone every day in a small apartment complex or housing complex? It would just it would be shut down by authorities so fast if it was happening. On the other hand, IKEA is using drones in their warehouses to do inventory counts. And you can imagine how fast that is. Like it used to be very manual, right? Like people literally going up and down on lifts, and now the drone with the camera can just be scanning everything. So there's a lot of tech application that's happening there, and the the whole AI discussion. I'm still trying to get my head around that, but that that has real implications in terms of efficiencies and eliminating you know a lot of redundant, repetitive
0: tasks. Right, right. I can confirm the 500 meters because I probably live about 500 meters from the 7-Eleven, and I get home from work, and I I literally have to pass 7-Eleven to get home. <laughs> and I look at the parking lot, and I'm like. Uh, I'll just pay the app fee. And I get home and I order a bucket of ice cream and it probably costs me three times as much as if I just pull in. Mm. But it's just the, the the new thread now of how my life operates. Not not a good thing. This is a whole other podcast. <laughs> David, one major event in the retail sector that's obviously had major impact and I think probably caught a lot of people off uh, by surprise, not just here in Vancouver, but maybe across Canada, is the the closing of the Nordstrom's brand in Canada, Nordstrom's and Nordstrom's rack. Obviously, downtown Vancouver, Nordstrom's has a very large, prominent footprint uh, on Granville there, Granville and Robson. Why do they close and what impact is that going to have? Maybe not just in the downtown landscape, but maybe the Canadian retail landscape.
1: Right. Well, I guess the first thing I'll say is I was sad to see them go. I felt when they landed on the scene, not only were they uh, a refreshing of, of retail, they brought a little bit more excitement than was at the time but i think they upped the game of a lot of the people in the space and i'm thinking you know i don't think harry rosen today harry rosen today is actually in pretty good shape and if you ask me 10 years ago i I might have been quite worried for them but i i you know i think sometimes good competition lifts everybody and uh so i'm sad to see them go i'm sad for the people i think they had a really great staff and there's a lot of uh hopefully they're all landing elsewhere in terms of the why, I'd, I've done a pretty deep dive on that. And I think my view might be a little contra- contrarian. There's a there's a lot of buzz about how Canada failed Nordstrom or you know strong U.S. retail can't succeed in Canada. Our market doesn't support it, and I, I don't think that's what happened here at all. And I'll start my premise by saying I don't they're privately held. Um, they're a public company, but they're pretty private on their data. So I do not have a list of store sales or sales per square foot for every store in their network, which is I think just over a hundred, uh, counting no- North America, Canada at 13. But my here's my premise: if we ranked all of those in terms of performance, we're not the bottom 13. And I think the story not yet told is they're in a bit of a mess in the States. And I, I indicated earlier that, you know, fashion was hard hit by the pandemic. They're a great example. You know, department stores, they're a clunky format anyway. I don't think anyone would invent those as a format today if they hadn't previously existed. You know, we try and make, make the most out of them. But I thought they were, as far as department stores go, they're pretty good operators. They really get service. They, they do a lot of things well. They were already slipping in performance heading into the pandemic, though they were starting to push more private label, trying to get their margins up, but it took away from what they were you know really uh, you know known for. The rack stores had lost luster, and we can talk about that separately, maybe there's a whole story there, but they were still they were still quite viable then the pandemic hits, and just clothing sales, demand for it, interest in it. Plummets. And when you think of the size of those stores and how much product needs to be stocked, they squeezed vendors quite hard over that. But nonetheless, it's it, it's hard to recapture that loss. And so Nordstrom's on shaky footing, Not not about to go bankrupt by any means, but just really not in good stead. Vancouver, as an example, every comment I've heard, including from inside Nordstrom, The Vancouver flagship was either one, two, or three, depending on the year and the whole network. We were probably overstored with Nordstrom. You know, again, when they came in, much like Target did, they weren't kind of building market by market and learning Canada. They kind of saw an opportunity to pick up a bunch of real estate that was right at the time. And uh, would they have chosen Ottawa in in a different uh scenario probably not I, I wouldn't think they would but they it was part of the package then they're left with it but i think they're maybe there's a little arrogance saying hey we're north we'll figure it out but they're a bit overstored but they certainly had uh some good stores here uh so it wasn't about canada failing them or them what i think really it came down to was a cfo could look at things and say look if we declare bankruptcy in canada we can save a crap load of money and get out from a bunch of obligations. If they, on the other hand, said, let's close our bottom 13 stores, it's going to cost a lot more to do so. I think it was just an opportunistic moment, and they took it, and they, I don't think they ever were, were as vested in Canada as we would have hoped they would be.
2: Interesting. David why why do certain companies um and I'm thinking specifically clothing companies like Lululemon for example or Aritzia seem to be expanding their retail footprint while a lot of others seem to be shrinking or um or even kind of leaving the retail space
1: Well I wanted that's a great segue from the Nordstrom story because part of that media coverage was uh look another you know people were citing Bed Bath and Beyond for example and you know, the pull out there. Again, I'll say it one more time, nothing to do with Canada in many of these cases. Toys R Us, not Canada per se. You know, the U.S. in many ways performed worse than we did. But you can you can kind of have a simplistic answer. And I guess the one thing I'm saying is the is the moment in retail right now is it's chaotic. Like there is not one storyline that applies to everything. And you've raised a really good example. You can say, while well, Nordstrom's gone, so fashion retail's dead, or you know, a certain kind of retail doesn't work anymore. And yet, right here out of Vancouver, we have headquarters for Aritzia and Lululemon. They've both had phenomenal last few years, even amidst the talk about people uh, tightening their wallets. Uh, I think people look for value, not cheap, in many cases. You know, at a low income point, you can only buy what you can buy. But there's a lot of people who We'll say they're budget driven now, but they'll still, they're going to go buy their Lululemon, but they see value in that. And so, the one thing I will point out though, that's quite different from Nordstrom is in the case of Lululemon, it's basically a mono brand. It's vertically integrated. They control everything with Aritzia close to that. It's a portfolio of mono brands, but it's really managed well. And I think the model of a mass multi brand reseller. You know, I'll I'll say this: I don't, I don't think a department store format makes sense. I don't think it's made sense for quite some time. But I think uh, the ones that have those entities are doing the best they can, and some do better than others. You can compare Nordstrom with the Bay. You know, Bay's still around. They must be breathing such a sigh of relief with that news. But it's only, but it doesn't get them out of the woods. It just buys them a little time. So I think uh, I, I don't have, uh, you know, maybe a, a depth answer because it's case by case. But what it signals is case by case, you can win in retail today, even with economic uncertainty and even if you're not uh, a discounter. And I'll, I'll I'll add one more thing on that conversation. Yesterday, we were talking about dollar stores. Dollarama is a phenomenal Canadian success story. And um, it is growing leaps and bounds. It's adding locations all the time dollar tree which came up from the states is a direct competitor they've been flailing and floundering so you can't even say hey dollar stores win as a universal statement
0: one thing i was curious to, to ask about you made mention about how harry rosen which is typically sort of a higher higher men higher end men's retail store retailer was probably a pretty good position Why would they be in a better position, say, than a a store like Nordstrom's, which probably sells competitive men's brands as a Harry Rosen does? What makes them maybe in a better position now than maybe like a Nordstrom's was, or maybe even a Holt Renfrew for that matter?
1: Well, I I think um, one of the things is, I think they're a more contained entity aimed at a pretty distinct market. And what I mean by that is when I say department stores don't make sense to me, I mean, a department store aiming at, at a very mass audience with a dramatically wide array of product over huge selling space. Like the Vancouver flagship for Nordstrom, I think is or was uh, something like 330,000 square feet. It's just it's massive. And uh, you, you have to have that stocked and looking great. So that takes a lot of inventory to be displaying and keeping up. And you need staff. Uh, just the economic model is really tough. The idea of still, you know, I said Lulu's mono brand. Rosen does sell private label, but they, I don't think if they went fully that direction, they'd win. They're a great curator for men's, but they know their audience and they've got a smaller footprint than a Nordstrom would have. They could focus on that category and just do that really well. And I think there's a lot of room for that. I think, you know, you could almost argue that, um, Anthropology, or maybe a better example would be Urban Outfitters, kind of does that for a youthful audience, right? Like they really know their audience when you go in there and they've got accessories and clothing, but also some records and, you know, some furnishings. You could argue that's a department store. Now that they, they sell mostly their own stuff, but they're kind of operating a department store, but it's super manageable and it's really curated to a tight segment. Uh, so it seems that's working that's the market side of it on the on the back end side of it when Nordstrom came in and men's clothing was a little bit on the wane you know i think pressure always brings out the best or worst and i think for for Rosen they really started to invest in their systems uh a lot of the back of house stuff and their their e-com and again, when the when the pandemic hit, they were kind of ready to go. Now the demand wasn't there then and they they pivoted into some more casual lines. But coming out of that, I would say from 2018 onward, they were a better retailers than they were in 2014. And uh, you know, I can't give all credit to Nordstrom for that. But one one thing about them is they've got third generation in now, Ian Rosen, and uh he went out of the business and kind of learned a lot about modern business. I think he was a Bain for a little while which was really smart of the family to be doing that he's come back in with a more youthful perspective but a broader perspective and i you know i can't again not being linear but i would say that these are all ingredients to success but i would never say any retailer right now is out of the woods like i you know it's it's a harder harder business today than it was 10 years ago
0: You may mention earlier about uh, when COVID hit, it gave the ability for some companies to probably shed some of the dead wood with regards to maybe not as well-performing locations. Because it was COVID, they were kind of under the umbrella there that, oh, it's not the company, it's just COVID versus if they closed those stores. Without COVID, they've probably been looked upon very negatively from a, a public perspective or a market perspective. Is it fair to say that's probably what Starbucks had did when they closed the 300 stores there, that they were shedding leases that probably weren't the best locations for them and (laughs) hiding under COVID?
1: Yeah, I've got friends at Starbucks. (laughs) But, you know, I've talked to people at the company. No one's kind of saying that's what they did, but I think that's what they did. It's a publicly traded company. I think a lot of their pivot was not necessarily consumer-driven. And, uh, yeah, I can't prove that but if i'm speculating i would say that was uh that was a big factor hey just there you were talking about changes through the pandemic yeah there's one thing that changed which i have a concern about and the thing about retail when you talk about physical retail we're still trying to find the magic way that physical retail can be very nimble and flexible when you've got length of time to build out and you've got longer term leases that said a pandemic shift that happened for Starbucks, but also McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, Hortons, was this kind of real dramatic push into drive-through. And we've seen data where the number of sit-down customers has shrunk and continued to be low after the pandemic, where the drive-through has bumped and the delivery has bumped. So that's changing things. The problem I have with we're trying to talk about an era where we get people out of cars and walking to places. And I just have this little cringe when I'm I'm driving and I see this massive lineup of cars idling trying to go through a, a Burger King window. And I wonder if that, like, what is that solving and serving? I think that what worries me is the investment in that kind of change and how long it has to take to pay back. We're almost stuck with a, a model shift that may not really make sense now,
2: maybe as a, a final question david you're running a, a a global firm looking at retail all over what what makes Vancouver, if anything, what makes Vancouver unique uh, when it comes to the retail landscape
1: um if you asked me this prepended like I would have said the uh, uh, and this is just factual as north america wide the impact of asian tourism predominantly from china but not limited to china and uh and sort of back and forth business travel like people who are working and living in both in both parts of the world that had a very unique impact in vancouver for our size and and actually got the attention of a lot of luxury brands that because of geopolitics not just pandemic first foremost and a continued uh handling of of the pandemic in China, but also some geopolitics. Whether it comes back to that in the future, I I don't know. But that was, you know, that was definitely idiosyncratic. I would say that, you know, our sense of fashion here, so if we talk about clothing, for example, our sense of fashion here is just remarkably different from a lot of other places in North America. It really is. And not, not just here, though. You could argue Seattle as well or or. Portland let's call it Cascadia back in the days when we worked a lot with Mountain Equipment Co-op we'd call it the uh you know the fleece uh look but um you know that that's different here in how we kind of how we dress uh professionally or weekends or whatever is quite different i think i don't know if lulu would have uh come out of another part of the world necessarily in terms of the supply of retail Something seems to happen at the uh, at the Rocky Mountains, so we don't get necessarily the wide array of the the global best of the best. But because we're kind of insulated here, we've actually had some really cool homegrown retail come out of here. So obviously, I Lulu Lululemon, but I would argue Urban Barn, and it was founded by one of our colleagues at Big Three Hundred and Sixty, Rick Bohonas. He co-founded it with uh, with his partner Craig Stewart. Fantastic Canadian uh, furniture decor store, and it was kind of incubated here. Dollar Giant, which was bought by Dollar Tree. And I you know the founder, Joe Calvano, has since exited, but that came out of here. Future Shop, predating Best Buy. You, you sort of go down the list, there's something over and above our population size or our business size that kind of brought out, I think, some really great entrepreneurial brands that managed to scale well. Uh, so that's more on the supply side of it. Uh, you can talk about restaurants also, right? Uh, sort of the the start with highs and the keg and Earls and cactus and go down the family tree. Definitely, North America leaders, really, really great operators all came out here. So you know, I don't, but I think at the end of the day, our Vancouverites as shoppers uh, like dramatically different from anywhere else. No, it's more like uh, on the margins, there's differences, but. You know, we still want to be served well. We, our view of value is pretty similar. We might have been a little ahead on sustainability, but I don't think we're that far ahead. You know, the world's kind of at where it's at right now on it.
0: David, one thing I was really curious about was, you I mean, you know, we have your traditional big box retailers and the brand names that everybody recognizes. But most of our communities are made up of a lot of really good mom, mom and pop type operations, whether it be restaurants or coffee shops or even even retail stores. Are they following the same type of trends that we talked about earlier? There, the big boxes are, or are they? Are they heading in a, a different direction? And if so, why?
1: Um, they're facing a lot of the same pressures that the bigger ones are having, and I think much as we talk about society having a a case of you know the the wealthier getting wealthier and the poor getting poorer, I think that the challenge in retail is the incumbent bigger, stronger retail that has money to invest in systems, et cetera, they're getting stronger. And weak chains are dropping out. But I also think it puts a very different pressure on independence. We need thriving independence to make our communities great and to create differentiation. And by the way, Lululemon was once an independent over on West 4th, right? So it's that's where the next round of of you know scaled retail comes from but i think never before do i think is independent product retail under uh, duress like it is today and a lot of that is we're learning to expect as shoppers you know incredible integration of online and offline service and storytelling from social streams etc so if we've got sort of let's call it Incumbent older generation, one or two stores, mom and pop. Often that's well beyond them. Either in terms of affordability or just their, if they're a certain generation, it's just overwhelming to even contemplate. And so we're seeing the divide widen in terms of of that kind of servicing. Now, where the winners come out of that is where you cannot rely on the tech quite so much and the high touch. You know that. An owner who's on site where there's an incredible amount of knowledge and service, I'll give you an example. Let's say fly fishing, there's Pacific Angler in downtown Vancouver. Everyone who works in that store, and Jason Tinelli who founded it, they're passionate anglers. They They fish, they're fly fishers, they do courses. If you're into that activity, you want to go to that place and absorb the knowledge and find out what's going on and pick up some stuff. That's not going to go away. I think, in fact, there's probably more and more room for that. But if you're just selling stuff, and it could be really neat artisan stuff, but if it's just kind of ubiquitous, uh, you're you're going to be in trouble. And so I think uh, think where I see hope, though, is there's a generation under that, the younger generation, that often were starting online and doing direct-to-consumer brands. They're finding their way into physicality. Uh, but they're building it from a digital footprint first. So they're almost there already. And I, so I do, I see hope, but I see a lot of uh, carnage happening on the, on the independent
2: scene. I, I just, David, this is, Um, I was just thinking about this cause we talk a lot on the show about like the happiness of, of communities and the health of communities being around like local mom and pop shops um, from like a planning perspective. But I guess that is that, are you speaking about more like selling products or would that apply also to, um, you know, the local coffee shops and, uh, and, and restaurants and bodegas? Yeah, I
1: was trying to, I was trying to add up myself a bit. I think when it comes to food and coffee, it's a little bit different because right. we, if we want to go out and have a sit in experience, like there's still, there's still room for that. Um, I think the, I think the economics are hard right now. Uh, So where those are kind of working is when, uh, you know, it's uh, an owner operator who's on site all the time running that restaurant or coffee shop. If they start adding, they add two more locations so that they can actually have a home life. I think they're getting caught. Uh, They're getting caught in the economics. And the people who really understand that are the, uh, you know, the, the people like Cactus or Earl's. They kind of found... You know, like people see what they do in the in the restaurants, but their use of data and their understanding of how to run a profitable business is like superlative. Right. And yeah. uh, a lot of people who, someone who's a great chef doesn't always translate into a great business owner.
0: <laughs> such, such a good um, saying.
1: You know, so, and I think that's the thing you get with independent is um, we work a lot with a group uh, called Loco BC. Amy Robinson's the executive director. And there's some really good data. If you guys are interested, she might be a good person to have on, but we disagree. We agree to disagree on some things. Like she kind of, in my mind, she glorifies independent retail too much. Like there's a lot of really awful, crappy independent retail out there. And I think part of it is to call it out and try and lift it as opposed to preserve it. Um, and, but, but there, there's also a lot of really great ones. And we need, I agree with your premise that for us to have really great communities, we need those people. And, and I worry when even our bigger chains, like what I love about Chip Wilson was he said Lululemon is going to be a global retailing success or brand success, but in his mind, always headquartered in Canada. Yeah. And we, we lose something the more that, you know, we offshore the, those things, Northam is a great example. They wouldn't have, if they had like a separate operating group, let's say they, I'm making this up, but let's say the Northeast in the U.S. was set up as a separate company in its structuring, and they had the opportunity to bankrupt it just to get out from under it, they would never do that. But Canada's Canada, right? Like, they they're not here. Right. Um, and uh, I think we would be the same, right? Like, you're not going to see someone headquartered in Vancouver bankrupt itself, around itself. They would probably cut off something further away first as, it, as they're trying to rectify it. So I've got a whole other concern about how much retail is, ownership concentration is drifting dramatically. But um, but we need the independence. Yeah, for sure. And so anyway, sorry, I went off. No, a little no,
0: no, that's that, okay. That, no, we appreciate that answers it. the question so, for sure. David, before we let you go here, we uh, first off really appreciate you taking the time to unpack all this today. We're, as I said at the start of the show, we're we're thrilled to have you here and sort of provide a lot of context to what has happened and what is happening. Before we let all of our guests go, we have a six pack of lighthearted questions we could ask everybody before we (laughs) could tell you a little bit outside of the work life there. Do you have a few more minutes for us? Sure. All right, David, first question up. Favorite vacation spot when you find the time?
1: Uh, I like paddling. That is the hard question because I like variety. So you, once you say that, I feel like I've now locked myself in for the rest <laughs> of my life. But, but where I smile and get happy is if I contemplate some kind of uh, out in the wilds trip late, you know, late August, early September. And then I start smiling and feeling pretty happy. But I love urban, you know, I love a lot of different things.
2: Nice. Uh, second question is uh, death row meal.
0: <laughs> you find yourself on death row. Unfortunately, you've done some bad deeds. You're given one last meal. Your arteries no longer make a difference in life. What are you eating before you go out?
1: I think I'd probably want to do like one of those chef specials where it's a roll. Like there's maybe 12 courses and there's a lot of time in between <laughs> each one with wine serve. Is that a
2: fair answer? Buy, buy yourself another year uh, or six months. <laughs> uh, you're you're uh, you're at a karaoke bar and someone hands you a mic. What song are you singing? Uh,
1: I would never do
2: semi-termed
1: life because, uh, slightly tipsy, I took that on and realized I only knew the chorus. Yeah, that's a very fast-paced song. It Most was a people disaster. Do. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think anything by Bob Dylan, I could probably tackle as long as it's in the, uh, you know, a repetitive uh, f- phrasing. Right. And I'll, I'll be good to go.
0: Good. A- good answer. Uh, a book recommendation all of our listeners need to read.
1: I like. Uh, OK, well, I've got a couple of faves that I've read a few times and I can't if you ask me why I'm, I'm just going to say it's personal. It resonated with me, but I'm a big fan. So one's called The Razor's Edge. By Somerset Mom and the other is, uh, the great Gatsby. And I think if there's a theme, there it might just be a universal theme of, you know, what does, what does success really mean? And, uh, the difference between, you know, outward success and, and personal growth, but they're still well written. They're just classic stories. I'm also a fan of almost anything Malcolm Gladwell, uh, puts right. out. I just read the bomber mafia about, you know, Bombing missions in World War Two, and he, th- he can almost take anything and make it interesting. Oh, um, sure. and I'll finish by saying, having said all that, uh, as a kid I was a big reader, and I'm so embarrassed at my lack of you know i I read a lot of articles, and I just I start and never finish a lot of books now. So I, it's on my list to do a little better on that.
2: <laughs> I, I can relate. Question number five is: uh, Do you have a favorite band or, or music genre?
1: I have a uh,
2: a special place for uh, uh,
1: early '90s alt rock and kind of early to mid '90s, uh, kind of the the Brit pop uh, scenes. And nice. I guess I'm I guess I'm kind of aging myself, but I try and keep up with. Uh, I've got a bunch of concerts coming up. That's that's actually been a lifelong passion is to go see music and. Uh,
0: any particular bands out of those genres there that that come to the forefront?
1: Um, well, I saw, uh, I don't know if your listeners are going to know them, but I recently saw the Chameleons UK that were pretty big. They, were, they just kind of predated Oasis uh, on the Brit scene, and they just played the Commodore a couple of months ago. That was kind of fun. I nice. wouldn't say it was the best show I, I've seen, but... Yeah and and there's lots of great uh there's a great artist out of Winnipeg uh named Begonia one one word name but she is fantastic. I love Metric. I like I'm a big I'm a big Canada fan just so your listeners know. So oh, that's great. besides besides boosting uh, local and Canadian owned retail, I also love Canadian artists and like seeing where they're headed.
0: Have you heard of Nickelback? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different show. <laughs> yeah. David, last question up. Something that you've purchased for $1,500 or under that's had a positive in, impact on your life lately?
1: That's a pretty awesome question. I don't know where this popped into my head, but it was a lot less than 1500 I would say. But it was a, uh, my first really ultralight backpacking tent. Oh, nice. Because it, it, because it enabled me to start doing... Overnight things where I wasn't kind of tethered to a car and that was that was game changing
2: this ties in with the favorite vacation spot so that's there uh, you go that's a good answer David how can people find out more about dig 360 and what you're up to and um, yeah how can they learn more
1: well wwwdig 360.ca is uh, I'm gonna say a mediocre website it gives some basics but I'm probably more prolific on LinkedIn so David D-A-V-I-D-I-A-N-E-N and Gray, G-R-A-Y on LinkedIn. And I share some things there. And yeah, and and just, you know, if there's anyone in your audience, uh, we love talking about the future of retail, but across the ecosystem. So, and I'll go right back to city planning. You know, like there's a lot of limitations cities put on uh, development that are way out of step with what's happening in society right now so anything, anyone who wants to talk about, um, the future of retail, always happy to do that. And our sweet spot is, uh, is working with, uh, CEOs and C-suite and founders who are trying to navigate change.
2: That's fantastic. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. Super fascinating conversation. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was great.
1: Oh, you, you, uh, you shepherded uh, me really well. And, uh, I tend to ramble. I hope I didn't too much, but uh, an enjoyable
0: process. Great. Thanks so much for your time, David. Great episode. And there you have it, folks. Our interview today with David Ian Gray of Dig360. I was very taken back by how much I took away from that, knowing full well how sought after he is for what he does in the retail sector. He unpacked so much more than I anticipated. I walk, I'm walk. i walking away learning lots today. Very yeah. excited to have him back another time.
2: Yeah, really appreciate David taking the time, really thoughtful talking about the retail space, talking about Vancouver and what makes it unique. And yeah, like like, I, like you said, tons of takeaways, uh, really fascinating conversations. So appreciate his time. Corey, what else do we got before we take off
0: for the day? How can people find out more about what William Wright is up to and of course, what you're doing? People can reach out to me by email anytime, Corey at williamwright.ca. They can sign up for news on our website, williamwright.ca, or they can give us a call anytime at our Vancouver office, 604-428-5255. Let us know what you're looking for. We'll put you in touch with the best broker in the province to help with your assets.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks for taking the time today, guys, and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks, guys. Take
0: care.
1: Subscribe today.